February 4, 1986. Roanoke, Virginia. 21-year-old Ray Ann Mosser is found dead on the street outside her estranged boyfriend's house with a shotgun wound to the chest. The shotgun is lying on the trunk of a nearby parked car, and according to her boyfriend, Ray Ann had implied she would kill herself if he did not take her back before he heard the fatal gunshot. While Ray Ann's death is officially ruled to be a suicide, her parents discover some suspicious discrepancies to make them believe she was murdered. A new investigation leads to Ray Ann's cause of death being reclassified as undetermined, but there are no conclusive answers about how she died. After that, the trail went cold. Hello everyone and welcome to our latest episode of The Trail Went Cold. I'm your host Robin Warder, and today we're going to be focusing on two cases which were featured on Unsolved Mysteries, the 1986 death of Ray Ann Mosser and the 1989 death of Norman Ladner. These are just two of the many cases featured on the show in which a young person died under odd circumstances and even though the official ruling from the authorities was that their deaths were suicides, the victims' families did not agree with this and believed that foul play had taken place. Aside from being profiled on Unsolved Mysteries, another similarity between the cases of Ray Ann Mosser and Norman Ladner is that in addition to the possibility of homicide or suicide, a third option is that their deaths could have been accidental when their guns discharged and fired a fatal bullet into them. Prior to Ray Ann's death, she had caused a scene by starting an argument at her estranged boyfriend's house and supposedly made a statement in which she implied that she would kill herself if he did not want to see her anymore. Since Rayanne soon received a fatal blast from a shotgun that she brought with her, this would seemingly lend credence to a suicide scenario, but Rayanne's parents argued that it would have been physically impossible for her to shoot herself in this fashion, particularly since the shotgun was found on top of the trunk of her boyfriend's car, rather than on the ground next to her body. In Norman Ladner's case, he was hunting alone in the woods on his family's property before he was shot in the head with his own rifle, but while the official ruling was suicide, there were a number of odd details which made Norman's parents suspect that he may have stumbled across something in the woods, such as a drug deal, which led to him being murdered. While it's certainly possible that the original suicide ruling in both these cases was correct, we're going to look at all possible scenarios. I'll start off by sharing the details of Ray Ann's death before I move on to Norman's case, and then I'll provide my theories and analysis for both of them. However, before we get started, just a quick reminder that The Trail Went Cold is a weekly podcast, which is currently available for download on several platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it, and please leave us a rating or review on any of those sites to help spread the word. The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so if you would like to learn how to support the show, please visit our page at patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold. For as little as $1 a month, you can garner access to exclusive rewards, including circus and thank you cards, early access to episodes, and bonus content. So with all that out of the way, let us now start off by exploring the death of Ray Ann Mosser. 
Our first story begins in Virginia in 1986, and our first victim is 21-year-old Ray Ann Mosser. Originally born in Ohio, Ray Ann now lives in the unincorporated community of Mount Pleasant with her parents Ronald and Rella Ann Mosser, the latter of whom goes by her middle name, and she also has two brothers. Ray Ann currently works as a waitress and has recently taken a test to enlist in the Navy as she is hoping to study radiology. On the evening of February the 4th, Ray Ann traveled to Roanoke in order to visit a suburban house on Elmcrest Street where her estranged boyfriend was living. This boyfriend's name has never been released publicly, but it sounds like the relationship was not in a good place at this point, and shortly after Rayanne arrived, she would wind up dead under very strange circumstances. Residents of the neighborhood reported hearing a gunshot from outside, and shortly thereafter, a motorist driving down Elmcrest Street saw Rayanne's body lying on the road, so she went to the nearest house and asked the owner to call the police. What the motorist did not realize is that a call to the police about a disturbance had already been made from the residence of Rayanne's boyfriend, and the officers who answered the call were already en route to Elmcrest Street when they received the news about the discovery of the body. They arrived at the scene at 7.57pm and discovered Rayanne's body lying in the middle of the street with a fatal gunshot wound to her chest. There was an empty buckshot shell on the ground, and Rayanne was next to her ex-boyfriend's parked car, where a 12-gauge shotgun was resting on top of the trunk, pointing in the direction of where Rayanne's body had fallen. It would later be determined that the shotgun belonged to Rayanne's grandfather, and she had brought it with her when she drove to the neighborhood. Rayanne's own car was parked across the street with the driver's side door open, the keys in the ignition, the lights still on, and music blaring from the radio. According to the boyfriend, Rayanne had shown up at his house, and they got into a heated argument over the fact that he had not seen her in a while, and he apparently had no desire to see her anymore. After Rayanne shouted the words, quote, What do I have to do to prove my love to you? Kill myself? She stormed outside and slammed the front door behind her. A short time later, the boyfriend said that he heard the sound of a gunshot outside, but he was too fearful to leave the house until the police arrived. The boyfriend was living at the residence with his brother and another unnamed woman who owned the house, and they would both back up the boyfriend's story. They confirmed that they saw Rayanne imply that she would kill herself before she stormed outside, and that the boyfriend remained inside the house until they heard the gunshot. Since there was no apparent evidence of foul play at the scene, and the boyfriend also passed a lie detector test, the police concluded that Rayanne likely shot herself, so her death was officially ruled to be a suicide. However, Ronald and Ann Mosser disputed this ruling, as they did not believe their daughter would have taken her own life, and they became even more skeptical when they read the official police reports. They were particularly perturbed by the fact that the shotgun was lying on the trunk of her boyfriend's car, as they believed it should have been on the ground next to her body if she had shot herself. Theoretically, Rayanne could have placed the shotgun on the trunk and fired a shot into her chest while she was still standing, but the big issue is that the distance from the trigger to the muzzle of the gun was 36.5 inches, and Rayanne's arm only measured 29 inches. Since Anne's arm was about the same length as her daughter's, she decided to perform a test with a broomstick, which was around 36 inches long, but found herself unable to reach the spot where the trigger on the shotgun would have been. Therefore, the Mossers concluded that it was physically impossible for Rayanne to have fired the fatal shot into herself while the gun was resting on top of the trunk. On the night of Rayanne's death, the Mossers were told that an autopsy would automatically be performed, but after not hearing anything for two weeks, they contacted the authorities 
and learned that no autopsy had been requested, as Dr. David Oxley, the Roanoke County Deputy Chief Medical Examiner, never did one. After obtaining a court order, the Mossers managed to have Ray Ann's body exhumed nearly six months later, and Dr. Oxley finally performed an autopsy with a private investigator who had been hired by the Mossers watching over him. The autopsy revealed that Ray Ann was killed by a close contact wound to the chest, which meant that the muzzle of the shotgun was touching her skin when the shot was fired. This seemed to support the Mossers' theory that Ray Ann would have been unable to reach the trigger, but Dr. Oxley still believed that her death was a suicide. Ronald and Ann decided to seek an outside opinion from Dr. John Butts, who was the chief medical examiner for the state of North Carolina. Dr. Butts disagreed with Oxley's conclusions from the original autopsy, as he believed that the muzzle of the shotgun was actually several feet away from Ray Ann's body when it was fired. Butts was also intrigued by the fact that some powder burns were found on Ray Ann's left wrist. This suggested her wrist was close to the muzzle of the gun when it was discharged, and may have indicated that Ray Ann was attempting to grab the gun at the time she was killed. After being shown Dr. Butts' findings, Dr. Oxley did agree to change the official ruling on Ray Ann's death from suicide to pending. In April of 1987, a Roanoke County grand jury was convened, and even though it was standard practice for prosecutors to present them with evidence, Anne elected to appear in front of them as a private citizen and request that they launch an inquiry into her daughter's death. However, Anne was unaware that the grand jury could not officially reclassify Ray Ann's death as a homicide unless a suspect was named by law enforcement, and since this had not been done, Anne's request for a new inquiry was denied. Donald Caldwell, the Commonwealth's attorney for the city of Roanoke, would also publicly state that the facts of the case did not support a homicide. In response, the Mossers decided to contact noted forensic pathologist Dr. Vincent DeMaio, who was the chief medical examiner in Bear County, Texas, and known for being an expert on gunshot wounds. After reviewing the evidence, Dr. DeMaio concluded that the police's suicide ruling was premature, and there were a number of discrepancies which could not be adequately explained. DeMaio concurred with the Mossers' theory that it would have been impossible for Rayanne to point the shotgun directly at her chest and reach far enough to pull the trigger. The only way Rayanne could have grabbed the trigger from a standing position is if she rotated her body, which meant the gun's muzzle could not have been pointed directly at the spot where her wound was. Like Dr. Butts, DeMaio believed that Rayanne had attempted to grab the muzzle when she was shot, which caused the powder burns on her left wrist. In July of 1987, the Mosser sent DeMaio's findings to Donald Caldwell and requested that he reopen the investigation, but he declined. Caldwell stated that he did not have the authority to change Ray Ann's official cause of death, as his job only involved him reviewing cases which were sent to him by law enforcement officials in order to decide if charges should be filed. So therefore, Ray Ann's death would have to be reclassified as a homicide before he could even look at the case. This prompted the Mossers to file a lawsuit in Roanoke Circuit Court, asking them to order Dr. Oxley to change Rayanne's official cause of death to homicide on her death certificate, and they also asked the state to reimburse them $25,000 for the legal fees and other expenses they had rung up from their own independent investigation. Oxley's response was that even though he was willing to revise the original suicide ruling for Rayanne, he could not reclassify her death as a homicide, until the possibility of an accidental death was ruled out. The Mossers decided to send the details of Rayanne's case 
to a firearms consultant and retired New York City police detective named R.G. Breglio, who would explore the possibility of Rayanne being killed when the shotgun accidentally discharged, possibly as the result of her slamming it against the trunk of her boyfriend's car in a fit of rage. Breglio performed what he described as a butt test, which involved slamming the butt of the shotgun against the ground in order to get it to discharge. But even though Breglio said he did this at least 40 times, the shotgun did not discharge at any point during these tests, which led him to conclude that Rayanne's death was not accidental. In September of 1987, the Mossers once again sent these new findings to Donald Caldwell, requesting that he reopen the investigation, but even though he acknowledged the receipt of their materials, he never provided any direct response to them about the case. In June of 1988, a Roanoke Circuit judge dismissed the Mosser's lawsuit to have Dr. Oxley reclassify Rayanne's death as a homicide. He ruled that the law did not allow a plaintiff to sue a defendant under these particular circumstances, so the Mossers were ordered to pay the court costs for both sides. However, the Mossers still sent their findings to the office of the Chief Medical Examiner for the State of Virginia, and on November the 16th of that year, just over two and a half years after Rayanne was killed, the medical examiner agreed to change the manner of death to undetermined, though this did not lead to a new investigation from Roanoke County authorities. The case would attain national exposure over one year later, when it was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries which aired in December of 1989, but Donald Caldwell and Dr. David Oxley declined to be interviewed in the segment. Unfortunately, this did not lead to any new developments, and the case soon faded from the spotlight, and on September the 25th, 2015, Ann Mosser passed away at the age of 73. After more than 37 years, there are still no conclusive answers about the death of Rayanne. So I guess you could say, the trail went cold. And now let's move on to our next case. Our second story begins in 1989 in Pearl River County, Mississippi, and our second victim is 17-year-old Norman Charles Ladner Jr., Originally born in Slidell, Louisiana, Norman currently lives with his father, Norman Ladner Sr., and mother, Charlotte Ladner. He is the third of their seven children, who consist of three daughters and four sons, of which Norman is the eldest. The Ladners reside on a 122-acre farm in the unincorporated community of Caesar, which is located near the town of Picayune, and they also run a country general store, where Norman often works as a clerk in order to help his family out. Norman is currently a senior in high school and is known for being a good student and a skilled craftsman who has his own personal workshop in the family barn. During the late afternoon of August the 21st, Norman told his family that he wanted to go hunting in the 60-acre wooded area located next to their farm. After he returned, Norman was planning to help close the store, but when he failed to show up by 7 p.m., his parents became concerned. When they failed to find him on the farm, Norman Sr. started to perform a search of the woods and Charlotte agreed to wait inside the store in case Norman came back. Well, sometime around 10 p.m., Norman Sr. finally came across his son's body in the woods, lying on the ground next to a tree. He had been fatally shot through the head, and since his body was cold, Norman had probably been dead for hours prior to discovery. The Pearl River County Sheriff's Department were summoned to the property, and one of their deputies went to the Ladner's store in order to inform Charlotte about her son's death. When Sheriff Lawrence Lumpkin investigated the scene, he discovered Norman's broken hunting rifle near his body. Lumpkin believed that Norman may have attempted to climb a tree while carrying his rifle, but then fell to the ground, which caused the weapon to accidentally discharge and fire the fatal shot into his head. 
Pearl River County Coroner John Stafford initially seemed to concur with this conclusion and told Norman's parents that he was 90% certain that his death was probably an accident. While the Ladners said they were willing to accept this ruling, they were taken by surprise when Stafford released his official findings the following day and ruled that Norman's death was a suicide rather than an accident. There was a close contact wound on Norman's right temple and the bullet had exited his left temple, so Stafford concluded that Norman had held his hunting rifle to his head while in a standing position and fired the fatal shot on his own. After reading Stafford's autopsy report, Sheriff Lumpkin became convinced that Norman's death was a suicide, theorizing that Norman may have felt comfortable in that particular wooded area and decided to take his own life there. However, Norman Sr. and Charlotte had a hard time accepting this, as they believed that their son was a happy, outgoing kid who enjoyed life and had shown no outward signs of depression. One detail from the autopsy report which troubled the Ladners was the listing of an unexplained one and a quarter inch laceration on Norman's scalp. Since there was a jagged tree root at the scene which appeared to have blood on it, the coroner believed that Norman may have hit his head when he fell, causing the laceration. But Norman Sr. did not believe this explanation, because if Norman shot himself while in a standing position, his body should have fallen backwards and the laceration would have wound up on the back of his head rather than his scalp. Norman Sr. theorized that the laceration was caused when someone hit Norman in the head with his own rifle, which explained why it was broken. Sheriff Lumpkin's counter for this was that the rifle had been broken on a previous occasion before it was glued back up. It was being held together with a loose screw and was already pretty fragile, so it still could have been broken in half when it fell to the ground following Norman's suicide. The Ladners were displeased that the Sheriff's Department did not check the rifle for fingerprints and never even bothered to search for the bullet which passed through Norman. They decided to return to the spot where Norman's body was found and dug through dirt containing blood and brain tissue in an attempt to recover the missing bullet. They eventually found an intact bullet with a small nick on it, which had been embedded just over two inches into the ground, and after looking at the bullet through a magnifying glass, Norman Sr. saw what he believed was dry blood and a hair on it. The Ladders did not believe that the bullet originated from Norman's rifle, as it seemed too long to fit inside the chamber. They also felt the bullet's trajectory indicated that Norman was already lying on the ground when it was fired down into his head by someone standing over him. When the bullet was turned over to the Sheriff's Department, it was examined by a state ballistics expert who was unable to determine if it had been fired from Norman's rifle. However, when the bullet was returned to the Ladners, they became convinced it was not the same bullet they recovered from the crime scene and that someone had switched them. Three weeks after Norman's death, the Ladners went to the coroner's office to speak with John Stafford about the ruling, but while they were there, Charlotte said their conversation was interrupted by a man who approached her and pulled her to the side. According to Charlotte, the man then said, quote, Mrs. Ladner, don't open this case up. You have other children. I suggest you raise them for your own good. You'll never find the person that killed your son, End quote. The man subsequently left, and he has never been tracked down or identified. A short time later, Norman Sr. returned to the woods on his property and was surprised to discover an odd, homemade radio-like device which was dangling on a string from a tree located about 300 yards from where Norman's body had been found. While the local authorities did not believe the device had any relevance to the case, Norman Sr. said that a neighbor recommended that he show it to a man living in the area who was a former DEA agent. 
This man apparently told them that devices like this were often used by drug dealers to send a low-range radio signal to aircraft flying overhead, which would help them figure out the proper alignment to drop shipments of drugs into the woods. This led Norman Sr. to suspect that his son may have stumbled across a drug deal taking place in the woods while he was hunting, and the responsible parties killed him in order to keep him silent. He believed this theory was bolstered by the fact that when Norman went hunting, he had been carrying his wallet, which contained $140 in cash, but the wallet was not found following his death. In August of 1990, the Ladners had Norman's body exhumed and hired an independent medical examiner from Wichita, Kansas to study it. In response to this, John Stafford stated, quote, Mississippi statutes provide that anyone who disagrees with a coroner's ruling may challenge that ruling by appealing it to the state medical examiner. If they disagree with the state medical examiner's determination, they then may appeal the ruling to the circuit court, end quote. Stafford claimed that the Ladners had never submitted any challenges to the courts, but the response was that they did not want to take the case to court, they just wanted answers about what they believed were inconsistencies in the official reports. The case would receive national exposure when it was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which aired in November of that year, but it did not lead to any new developments, and the local authorities continued to maintain that Norman's death was a suicide. Tragically, Norman Sr. passed away on December 28, 2003, at the age of 66, and father and son are now buried together in the same family plot at Turtleskin Cemetery in Pearl River County. But after three decades, there are still no conclusive answers about what actually happened to Norman Ladner. So I guess you could say, the trail went cold. So if there's one type of segment from Unsolved Mysteries which has become the center of a controversy, it's their stories about suspicious suicides. The show featured a lot of cases like this during the original run, and while some of them, such as the suspicious death of Keith Warren, put up a very strong argument that the victim's death was not a suicide, very few of them actually had the original suicide ruling overturned. One recurring theme I noticed with some of these suspicious suicide cases is that there often seemed to be very little information available about them online from outside sources other than Unsolved Mysteries, so most of the information we did know was shared from the perspective of the victims' families. Well, one of the reasons that the Unsolved Mysteries reboot on Netflix has been the subject of criticism is because they have featured very few straight homicide or missing persons cases in which it was conclusively established that a crime took place. They seem to gravitate towards stories in which someone dies under odd circumstances, and while the official ruling was a suicide or an accidental death, the victim's loved ones are adamant that they were the victim of foul play. But the key difference is that the internet was not a thing back when the original Unsolved Mysteries first launched, and we now have much easier access to information and can find out if the show left out key pieces of information to fit a specific narrative. It was around this time last year when the Unsolved Mysteries reboot dropped their episode about the suspicious suicide of Tiffany Valiante, who supposedly entered her life by stepping in front of a train. Almost immediately after the episode dropped, online sleuths were sharing additional details they had dug up about Tiffany's tumultuous personal life, which were not mentioned during the episode, and made the suicide theory seem a lot more plausible than the series had let on. So once you learn about how slanted some of these new episodes are in order to create an aura of mystery, 
you retroactively become more skeptical of some of the suspicious suicide segments from the original series, and I think that the Ray Ann Mosser and Norman Ladner cases would certainly fall into this category. In both these segments, very little information is provided about the victim's background, and even though their parents appeared on camera and were adamant that they never would have gone through the act of suicide, how can we be certain? Could key details have been left out which made the suicide scenarios a lot more plausible? To put this into perspective, if you go to the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online forum, which I'm always referencing, you'll find a number of threads about Norman Ladner's case. It's quite interesting how if you look at the posts which were made about 10 to 15 years ago, the original consensus was that Norman was murdered, but if you look at posts from recent years, the majority opinion seems to be that Norman's death may have been a suicide after all, or possibly even an accident. And I think a large part of this switch is due to the skewed presentation of some of the stories on the Unsolved Mysteries reboot, which has caused fans to look back at some of the older stories with a much more critical eye. Now, like I mentioned in the intro, one of the reasons I decided to group the stories of Ray Ann Mosser and Norman Ladner together in this particular episode is because homicide and suicide may not be the only options, as it's possible the victims were killed when the guns they had been carrying accidentally discharged and fired a bullet into them. In fact, the authorities initially believed that Norman's death was an accident, and his parents seemed willing to accept that, but once the coroner officially ruled the cause of death to be suicide, the Ladners did an about-face, and suddenly started believing that Norman was murdered, and some sort of cover-up was taking place. If the authorities had held to the original accident ruling, would we have even heard about Norman's case? Sadly, the Ladners' desire to seek justice may have been the result of the stigma surrounding suicide, as it can be a difficult and taboo subject for victims' families to deal with, even more so back during the 1980s. The same logic may apply to Ray Ann Mosser's story, because during her Unsolved Mysteries interview, her mother Anne even stated, quote, When her daughter was murdered, she was charged and convicted of a crime she did not do to herself, end quote. In recent years, there has been a push to stop using the phrase committed suicide, since the word committed is often associated with the act of committing a crime, so I'm sure many people would not appreciate Anne's assertion that the act of suicide is the same thing as a crime. I'll state right up front that I no longer put much stock into statements from victims' family members about how the victim was not suicidal because they were a happy person who loved life or had a bright future ahead of them and had too much to live for. Suicidal people can sometimes be very unpredictable and give off no outward signs of being depressed before they take everyone by surprise by ending their lives. So when determining the plausibility of a suicide ruling, all I can really do is look at the facts and the evidence, which is how I'm going to analyze these cases. So what's unique about Ray Ann Mosser's case is that it isn't presented as one of those stories where someone took their own life completely out of nowhere, as there seems to be a perfectly plausible motive for suicide. She showed up at her estranged boyfriend's house and started an argument in which she allegedly implied that she would kill herself if he did not take her back, and shortly after she stormed outside, Ray Ann wound up dead. Well, it seems like a strong reaction to fire a shotgun blast into your chest over a failed relationship, perhaps Ray Ann was going through some sort of mental health crisis at the time, and her boyfriend's refusal to rekindle the relationship was her breaking point. But on the other hand, there is a very compelling argument that it would have been physically impossible for Rayanne to have even reached the trigger and fired the fatal shot under those circumstances. If one wanted to end their own life with a shotgun, 
The most common method would be to place the butt of the shotgun on the ground and the muzzle in your mouth or under the chin before you pull the trigger. It's very odd that the shotgun was found on the trunk of her boyfriend's car, meaning that if this was a suicide and no one else was involved, Rayanne had to place it there and pull the trigger to fire a shot into her chest while she was in a standing position. Now, one habit which Unsolved Mysteries seem to have in their presentation of these suicide cases is that if the victim died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound and the gun was found at the scene, they would often neglect to mention where the weapon came from and who it belonged to. And that's certainly how they presented Ray Ann's case, as it was only after reading some old newspaper articles when I learned that the shotgun belonged to Ray Ann's grandfather and she had brought it with her to her boyfriend's house. Of course, one of the biggest issues with trying to figure out what happened here is that we know virtually nothing about Ray Ann's relationship with this guy other than the fact that he no longer wanted to see her. His name has never been released publicly, which makes sense, given that he has never been charged with any crime, or named as a suspect or person of interest, but there are so many unanswered questions. How long did his relationship with Rayanne last, and how did it end? Did he have any history of abuse or criminal activity? We don't know the answers to the question, but Rayanne's mother did acknowledge that she had a temper. While I can understand Rayanne showing up at her estranged boyfriend's residence and starting an argument with him, bringing a shotgun along with you does seem like a major red flag. Of course, I haven't read anything about Rayanne actually bringing the shotgun inside her boyfriend's house, as she may have kept it in her car, but you could infer that she had a backup plan to end her own life if he didn't want to rekindle the relationship. The official story is that Rayanne yelled, quote, What do I have to do to prove my love to you? Kill myself? before storming out of the house, and a short time later, the fatal shot was fired, possibly after Rayanne grabbed the gun from her vehicle. Admittedly, that statement Rayanne made is pretty melodramatic and sounds like dialogue you would find in a soap opera, but the Unsolved Mystery segment said that three different witnesses confirmed they heard Rayanne say this. They never mentioned the identities of these three witnesses, but according to some newspaper articles I found, they were the boyfriend, his brother, and a woman who owned the house where this incident took place. I get the impression that the three of them were living there together, and the brother and the woman apparently confirmed that the boyfriend was still inside the house when they heard the gunshot. If you believe the boyfriend was responsible for Rayanne's death, then I suppose the brother might be willing to lie to the police to cover for him, but I don't know enough information about the woman to determine if she would do something like this. But if they're all telling the truth, and the police seem to think they were, then this would rule out the boyfriend of any involvement. I think the issue with the foul play theory is that if Rayanne was murdered, the boyfriend or perhaps the other two witnesses are the only logical suspects because what are the odds that a completely unknown third party would just happen to be passing through the neighborhood at this particular time and then use Rayanne's own shotgun to kill her in a very narrow window of time before fleeing the scene without being spotted by anyone? The boyfriend told police that when he first heard the shotgun blast, he was too fearful to go outside and see what happened, which might sound like an odd reaction, but we have no idea how frightening Rayanne may have seemed during their confrontation. While it was a random passing motorist who first discovered Rayanne's body and called police, officers were already on their way to the scene at that point after a call about a disturbance was made from the boyfriend's residence. Details are vague as I'm not sure if it was the boyfriend himself who made the phone call, or if it took place before or after the shotgun was fired. Whatever the case, 
No one has ever confirmed having seen the boyfriend outside the house or being near Rayanne during this time period. Since Rayanne's car was found with the door open, the key in the ignition, the lights on, and the radio turned on, this could be seen as an indication that she was interrupted while she was planning to leave, but if she was feeling suicidal, Rayanne may not have been all that concerned at ensuring her vehicle was fully secured before she killed herself. Another detail not mentioned by any source is whether fingerprints were found on the shotgun, but I'm sure that if the boyfriend's prints were there, we would have heard about it, since that would be pretty strong evidence of his involvement. Hell, if Rayanne's prints were not on the weapon, and the gun had been wiped clean, I'm sure we would have heard about that as well, as there's no way Rayanne could wipe off her own prints after she was dead. It's worth noting that at no point during their interviews, did Rayanne's parents ever point the finger at the boyfriend or any other potential suspect as being responsible for her death. They often seem more concerned about having Rayanne's death officially reclassified as a homicide in order to clear her name, and ensure she wasn't remembered as a suicide victim. Now, in a lot of these suspicious suicide cases, you'll see the victim's families hire independent experts to take a fresh look at the evidence, but since these experts are being directly paid for by the family, you almost wonder if they're simply providing them with the conclusions that they want to hear. But at the very least, Dr. Vincent DeMaio was one of the top gunshot experts in the country who worked on a number of high-profile cases, and I do think he makes a compelling argument that it would have been difficult, if not outright impossible, for Rayanne to point the muzzle of the shotgun at her chest and then reach far enough to pull the trigger. I definitely think the authorities made a mistake by not immediately performing an autopsy following Rayanne's death, and even though he declined to be interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries, the Roanoke County Deputy Chief Medical Examiner David Oxley did make a public statement that he regretted not doing the autopsy. I do give Dr. Oxley some credit, because once he was presented with the Mosser's new findings from Dr. Butts and Dr. DeMaio, he did acknowledge that he wasn't so certain about his original suicide ruling. But the main reason he didn't officially reclassify Rayanne's death as a homicide is because he could not completely rule out an accidental death, which is a fair assessment. I have to say that I've never been particularly impressed by the testing performed by R.J. Breglio, the firearms consultant who tried to rule out the possibility of Rayanne being the victim of an accidental discharge. His testing involved slamming the butt of the shotgun on the ground about 40 times without it ever going off, but since this did not replicate the exact circumstances of how Rayanne was found, I'm not exactly sure what this proves. Remember, the shotgun was found on the trunk of the car with the muzzle facing the area where Rayanne would have been if she was shot while in a standing position. The theory pushed forward is that Rayanne could have slammed the gun down on the trunk so hard that it accidentally discharged and fired a bullet into her. Unless Breglio replicated that specific scenario during his testing, how can he be 100% certain that Rayanne was not killed in this fashion? Granted, I'm not sure if it's logistically possible for a shotgun to accidentally discharge under those circumstances, but if it is, this could explain why it was resting on top of the trunk, even though Rayanne's body was on the ground. While I can believe that Rayanne was feeling suicidal and made a brash decision to kill herself, I'm still not entirely convinced it would have been physically possible for her to do so in this fashion. However, if Rayanne was the victim of a homicide and her boyfriend was responsible, I doubt it was premeditated murder. The presence of powder burns on Rayanne's left wrist has given off the impression that she was attempting to grab for the gun when it went off, so hypothetically, 
This could be a situation where Rayanne's boyfriend went out to confront her while she was carrying the shotgun, and a struggle ensued where he attempted to grab it, and the gun accidentally went off and killed her. In a panic, the boyfriend then drops the shotgun in his car and runs back inside before the police arrive. He then gets incredibly lucky that no witnesses saw him and that he left no physical evidence behind, and he also gets his brother and his other housemate to lie for him, so that investigators reach the conclusion that Rayanne's death was a suicide. If you search online discussions about this case, you'll come across some rumors that the boyfriend was a police informant, which is why law enforcement wanted to protect and cover for him, but I've never seen this corroborated by any official source, and it sounds like wild, unsubstantiated gossip to me. Once again, we know absolutely nothing about the boyfriend, and if the witnesses who vouched that he was nowhere near Rayanne when the gun went off are credible, then he simply didn't do this. At the same time, I can understand the frustration from the Mossers, because it sounds like they were caught in a bit of a catch-22 in regards to getting the authorities to reopen the investigation. Law enforcement wouldn't review the case unless it was reclassified as a homicide, but the medical examiner was not going to do so until new evidence surfaced, which conclusively proved that a homicide had taken place, which, of course, is evidence that may never be found unless a new investigation is opened by law enforcement. Personally, even though the logistics of Rayanne's death being a suicide or accident do not seem to make much sense, I think it makes even less sense for someone to have been able to kill her under those circumstances without leaving any evidence behind. I keep thinking of how Norman Ladner's death was initially believed to be an accident, and his parents were willing to accept that until it was classified as a suicide. If it was conclusively proven that Rayanne did not die by suicide and was killed when the shotgun was accidentally discharged, would her parents have been able to accept this and move on? In a way, they achieved a small victory when the state medical examiner changed Rayanne's cause of death from suicide to undetermined, but this still doesn't provide them with any answers. If this was murder, I think the only way the case can be solved after all this time is if someone makes a confession or comes forward with information. But if Rayanne was solely responsible for her own death and it took place without the presence of any eyewitnesses, then sadly, we may never know the full truth. So now let's move on to Norman Ladner's case, and like I just mentioned, it was initially classified as an accident before the coroner changed the ruling to suicide. Now, if you're wondering how an accidental death like that could occur, Unsolved Mysteries had previously done another segment about this very scenario, though it was framed as a medical mystery rather than a potential crime. This particular segment involved a man named Don Hamilton, who climbed to the top of a tree during a hunting trip, but then accidentally dropped his rifle. The gun then discharged after hitting the ground and fired a shot into Don's leg while he was still up in the tree. This incident caused Don to lose over half the blood in his body, and he was technically considered to be brain dead for a while, but he wound up making a miraculous recovery. But since this story demonstrates that it is possible for hunting rifles to accidentally discharge after dropping them from a tree, I wondered if such a situation could have occurred with Norman. Sometimes hunters do climb trees when they want to survey the area, so if Norman did this and then proceeded to drop his rifle, could the gun have discharged and fired a freak bullet into Norman's temple? And if Norman fell out of the tree and banged his head on the jagged root sticking out of the ground, this could also account for the unexplained laceration on his scalp. Granted, it's easier to imagine a discharge firing a bullet into someone's leg, as firing a fatal shot into someone's head under those circumstances sounds like a one in a million freak occurrence. But one detail which gave me pause about the suicide theory 
was the fact that Norman's rifle was broken when it was found. Granted, since the rifle had been damaged on a previous occasion, it sounds like it was already a bit fragile at this point, but could it have broken in half after Norman shot himself in the temple? It seems to make a lot more sense that it broke after being dropped from a tree. The accidental fall from a tree was Sheriff Lawrence Lumpkin's original theory, but I think he was swayed by the autopsy report, as the county coroner, John Stafford, believed that Norman was in a standing position when he was shot. But even if that assessment is accurate, that still doesn't rule out the possibility that someone else could have fired the fatal bullet into Norman's head. Regardless of whether you believe this was suicide, homicide, or an accident, I think the most frustrating aspect of this investigation is that law enforcement did not bother to perform a search for the missing bullet, so no one has been able to conclusively determine if Norman was actually shot with his own rifle. Of course, Norman's parents came to believe that he stumbled upon a drug deal in the woods and was killed for it, and if law enforcement was complicit in any of the drug activity taking place in the area, they would have had a vested interest in covering up his death. I think the main reason this theory picked up so much momentum is that it's reminiscent of another famous case which was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, the 1987 murders of Don Henry and Kevin Ives, a.k.a. the Boys on the Tracks case. Of course, I also featured this story on episodes number 313 and 314 of The Trail Went Cold, as it involved two teenage boys who went hunting in the woods of Saline County, Arkansas in the middle of the night, before their bodies were discovered on some tracks and they were run over by a freight train. While the two boys' deaths were originally ruled to be an accident, the case was eventually reclassified as a homicide, as it seemed obvious that whoever was responsible laid their bodies on the tracks in hopes that the train would destroy any evidence of foul play. And since a lot of drug trafficking was taking place in Arkansas during the 1980s, the most prevalent theory is that these boys were murdered after stumbling across a drug drop in the woods. Of course, Norman Ladner's case took place in the neighboring state of Mississippi. He also wound up dead while hunting in the woods. But the key difference is that there's so much material about the boys on the tracks case and very little information about Norman's case outside the Unsolved Mystery segment. There have been allegations of police corruption in this story, and I will acknowledge that Sheriff Lawrence Lumpkin does have a bit of a troubling history. In November of 1992, one year after Lumpkin lost his bid for re-election as sheriff, he was among 37 people who were arrested during a police raid of a dogfight which was taking place in the rural Fords Creek area. And while it was not believed that Lumpkin played a hand in organizing the dogfight, just being a spectator at such an event was considered to be a felony. And in July of 1995, Lumpkin found himself in more legal trouble after a domestic dispute at McLeod Water Park in Hancock County, where he allegedly rammed his car into a park employee's vehicle and pushed it into a fence. He wound up being charged with simple assault, malicious mischief, disorderly conduct, and carrying a concealed weapon. I'm not exactly sure how Lumpkin's legal situation ultimately turned out, but he passed away in December of 2007. So yes, Lumpkin may not have been a model citizen, but does that mean he was complicit in drug trafficking and the murder of a teenage boy? Well, let's look at the evidence which the Ladners believed supported their theory of foul play. It seems like the main reason they suspected that Norman's death was drug-related is because his father found an odd radio-like device in the woods which was apparently the same type of equipment used by aircraft during drug drops. In the Boys on the Tracks case, the stumbling upon a drug drop theory was plausible 
because there was a documented history of that sort of thing in Arkansas during that time period, but one thing which is not so clear is whether these type of drug drops were taking place in Pearl River County around the time of Norman's death. Did the Ladners or any other residents have recollections of strange aircraft flying over the area in 1989? Were airplanes ever seen flying near the Ladner farm? During his Unsolved Mysteries interview, Norman Sr. described his family's property as being fenced in, which makes me wonder if it was easily accessible to outsiders. I get the impression that the 60-acre wooded area where Norman went missing was private property owned by his family, so it seems strange that drug dealers would elect to conduct their business there. On the other hand, Norman Sr. did find that radio device on his property, so I'm sure people did trespass there, but while that device was certainly odd, it was not found until weeks after Norman's death and about 300 yards from the spot where he was killed, so who knows if it has any relevance to this case at all. The other piece of evidence found in the woods was the bullet which was embedded over two inches into the ground near the spot where Norman's body was discovered. Once again, it's unfortunate that the Pearl River County Sheriff's Department never bothered searching for a bullet that very same night, since they did not seem to believe that a crime had taken place and evidence needed to be collected. If they had managed to find a completely different bullet, which was proven to have been fired from Norman's rifle, then a lot of questions may have been answered. But this particular bullet's discovery has created so much confusion and many different interpretations. I agree that if Norman had fired a bullet through his temple while in a standing position, I'm not sure the bullet would have wound up that deep in the ground, but it could not be determined if it originated from Norman's rifle. The Ladners seemed to think it was too long to have fit inside the rifle's chamber, but even if it was fired from a different gun, does that prove that someone else shot Norman? One theory which has been pushed forward is that this bullet was fired on a previous occasion before Norman's death, and while that idea might seem laughable in most instances, we know that Norman did like to go hunting in the woods a lot. I don't know how often his parents and his six other siblings went hunting there, but if they had a habit of firing off bullets from different guns, this could explain why this particular bullet did not fit inside Norman's rifle. Norman Sr. thought he saw small traces of blood and a hair on the bullet, and if this case had not taken place back in 1989, perhaps it would have been subjected to DNA testing to see if this forensic evidence matched Norman. But as it is, how can we be certain that this bullet wasn't fired through an animal during a previous hunting excursion? The Ladners claimed that when they sent this evidence to a state ballistics expert, a completely different bullet was later returned to them, which could point to a cover-up, but it's not like the Ladners provided photographic comparison between the two bullets or anything, so we really just have to take their word for it. And that brings us to the conversation that Charlotte Ladner had with the mysterious man at the coroner's office, in which she supposedly implied that for the safety of her other children, she should back off from investigating Norman's death. Now, I certainly don't want to accuse a bereaved mother of lying about something like this, but were there any other independent eyewitnesses who could confirm that the incident took place? I mean, if Charlotte is telling the truth, then this is a strong indicator that there was a cover-up surrounding what happened to Norman, but the circumstances of how this conversation occurred are so strange. It would be one thing if the Ladner family had received a threatening phone call or a threatening note like this, but why would this random guy be hanging around at the coroner's office and how did he know the Ladners were going to be there? Was he following them? Most importantly, did the Ladners receive any more threats or experience other weird incidents like this 
to indicate that someone was trying to prevent them from investigating Norman's death. Again, I don't want to accuse Charlotte of making this story up, but there are other documented cases where victims grieving family members have greatly exaggerated or flat-out fabricated stories for the purposes of furthering their own narrative. One key difference I noticed with the Ladners and Rayanne Mosser's parents is that the Mossers attempted to go through the proper legal channels to have their daughter's death reclassified as a homicide as they took the matter to court and did stuff like present evidence in front of a grand jury. As far as I can tell, the Ladners never took any of these steps or submitted any official challenges to the courts, and John Stafford even acknowledged that if the family disagreed with his official suicide ruling, they could have appealed it to the state medical examiner. This is exactly what the Mossers did, which is why Rayanne's cause of death was changed from suicide to undetermined. But if the Ladners never did that, it could be a sign that the evidence that Stafford's suicide ruling was wrong was just not that compelling. I suppose the strongest evidence that someone else was involved in Norman's death is the fact that his wallet, which supposedly contained $140, went missing after he was killed. Admittedly, it is a bit odd that a 17-year-old would be carrying $140 in cash, which is the equivalent of around $345 in today's money, while he's out hunting in the woods, so I've seen some online sleuths speculate that Norman could have been planning a secret rendezvous to purchase drugs, but this somehow led to his death. But of course, that's all just speculation, and even if Norman's wallet was stolen, that doesn't necessarily mean it was done by someone who murdered him. Believe it or not, a situation like this actually occurred in the infamous case of Jeffrey McDonald, who went to prison for murdering his wife and two daughters, though he has always maintained that they were murdered by intruders during a home invasion. During the early stages of the investigation, it was discovered that McDonald's wallet was missing, which would seem to lend credence to his story, but it turned out the wallet had actually been stolen by an ambulance driver who visited the crime scene. So could a similar situation have happened with Norman? Could one of the paramedics who handled his body stolen his wallet or something? Well, quite frankly, I'm now a bit skeptical about the legitimacy of this lead involving the wallet. Now, if you go to the write-up about Norman Ladner's case at the official Unsolved Mysteries website, it does mention the wallet and the $140, but curiously, if you watch the original segment about Norman's story on the official FilmRise channel on YouTube or Amazon Prime, this information is no longer included. However, as you probably know, during the late 2000s, Spike TV released a new version of Unsolved Mysteries hosted by Dennis Farina, which involved repackaging segments from the original series. And if you watch their segment about Norman Ladner, the detail about the wallet is still included. This makes me wonder if someone recently uncovered new information to indicate that the lead involving the wallet is false, so they've cut out all mention of it from the original segment. I only bring this up because if you research this case online, you'll find some sources which say that Norman's driver's license was found over 1,000 miles away by a roadside in New York State. If true, then this would probably be the most convincing piece of evidence that someone killed Norman and stole his wallet, but the problem is that this information originated from a post at the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the sitcom's online forum, and I have no idea if it's even true. The individual who shared this detail was a poster who went under the username Roving Gambler, as they left quite a few posts in a thread about this case back in 2006 and 2007. Roving Gambler said that they hailed from Picayune and had been a childhood friend of Norman's, 
and confirmed that he was a fun-loving guy who didn't give off any obvious signs of being suicidal. This poster seems to believe the stumbled-upon-a-drug-deal-and-murder theory and claims that it was Norman Sr. who told him about Norman's driver's license being discovered in New York, and the reason this detail was not mentioned on Unsolved Mysteries was because the license was not found until after the episode aired. Now, I will say that from the tone of their posts, I do believe that Robin Gambler was being truthful and probably was a former friend of Norman's. But the information about the driver's license was supposedly shared with them secondhand by Norman's father, so it should not be accepted as a confirmed fact. Once again, since all mention of Norman's wallet seems to have been cut out of the Unsolved Mysteries segment, I have to wonder if something was recently found to debunk this whole lead. I will admit that when I first saw Norman's story on the show during the early 1990s, I was totally convinced he was the victim of foul play and likely murdered by drug dealers, but as I've grown older and wiser, I've become more skeptical. I'm not going to say that I'm completely certain Norman was not murdered, but I do wonder if there was key information about this story not mentioned on Unsolved Mysteries, which could have shed some light on his mental state at that time and pointed towards the possibility of a suicide. Like I mentioned earlier, the main issue is that, unlike, say, the boys on the tracks case, we really don't have that much strong evidence pointing towards a homicide other than strange events which may have been blown out of proportion. But interestingly enough, even though Unsolved Mysteries never flat out mentions these two details, they show a copy of Norman's autopsy on screen, and if you pause and take a closer look at it, you'll notice that it mentions blood spatter being found on Norman's left hand, as well as a soot stain at the entry wound. The soot stain would seem to indicate that the rifle was held directly to Norman's right temple when the shot was fired, and possibly rule out a scenario of him being the victim of a freak accident when the rifle discharged. And while the blood spatter on his hand could have been caused by the bullet exiting his left temple, another explanation is that he could have used his left hand to steady the rifle while using his right hand to pull the trigger. If a more thorough investigation had been performed at the outset, then we might have been able to conclusively determine the cause of Norman's death, but as it is, there really isn't that much evidence pointing towards foul play or a cover-up. All that being said, if you happen to have any information which points to the deaths of Norman Ladner or Rayanne Mosser being homicides, please contact the appropriate authorities. But if you just have your own thoughts about what happened, feel free to leave me a comment or send me an email to robin.warder at icloud.com. That's robin.warder at icloud.com. Now the reminder that The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so please visit patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold to learn how you can support our podcast and become eligible for some pretty neat rewards. Over the past five years, our Patreon page has released dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, which are all currently available in our archives for our patrons in tiers 2 and 3. This past month, I released a Halloween-themed bonus episode about the Guardian UFO case, which explores the odd 1991 sighting of a mysterious object in a field just outside my hometown of Ottawa, Ontario. I've also dropped an exclusive bonus episode from my spin-off podcast, The Path Went Chili, in which myself and my two co-hosts, Jules and Ashley, discuss another Halloween-themed mystery, the unexplained 1988 death of David Stone. And for our patrons in Tier 3, I've recorded another new audio commentary track, which can be played over a classic episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and we now have over 50 of these commentary tracks in our archives. I'd also like to give a shout-out to our newest listener who has signed up with us on Patreon this week, named Liv, so thank you very much for your support. 
And before I bring this episode to a close, I'd like to play a promo for a newly launched true crime podcast. Earlier on, I made mention of the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online Forum, and the host of this podcast, Heather Grotland, used to be the lead moderator of that board. A few years ago, she started a website called lostandfoundblogs.com, which contains a number of very in-depth articles about cold cases, many of which were featured on Unsolved Mysteries. Well, she's now decided to start a new podcast called Lost and Found Podcast, which will explore these cases in even more detail, and she recently dropped their first episode in a multi-part series about the disappearance of Dale Kerstetter. So here's the trailer for it, and I hope you check it out. Hello, this is Heather Grotman. I'm the creator and writer of Lost and Found Blogs, where I write detailed articles about lesser-known missing persons cases. Join me as I now turn my articles into podcast form in hopes of garnering more attention to these mysteries without endings. Some of the cases I will be covering were on the television show Unsolved Mysteries, and I will have some exclusive information from them that might surprise you. I will also be talking to the people with personal knowledge of the stories when possible, as well as a few co-hosts. Let's talk about the lost and the found. I just wanted to give another shout out to my supporters at the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online Forum and the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit, which both have a number of interesting threads about today's featured cases. I need to provide a big thanks to Miguel Foote, who edits and assembles this podcast together for me, and Vince Nitro, who composes the ear music you hear on every episode. If you haven't already, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So have yourselves a great week, and join us again next Wednesday for another brand new episode of The Trail Went Cold. Thank you.